This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, hello, and welcome to the Chasing Bandos podcast. We just finished the Chernobyl miniseries. The episode 10 was released last Wednesday. That was the last episode. We are now back to our regular schedule every Saturday, new episode with a new explorer. Last Saturday, I was talking to Jong from France, an explorer who loves this nature coming out, vines, really, really abandoned places where the greens come out. He loves that style. If you haven't listened to that episode, give it a go. Actually, today's guest and the previous guest, they have something in common. And what's in common is the fact they explored very similar places. Well, on today's episode, I am interviewing my first Norwegian explorer, Marcus. Well, Marcus and I, we had a bit of a problem recording the episode. First 15 minutes was kind of lost and then we had to start again. But nevertheless, we end up talking a lot and Marcus shared his experience of going to the Holy Grail of Urbex. I cannot wait for you guys to hear this story. And yeah, he has very amazing story about exploring with the members of his family, which is just blew my mind. So, well, I'm not going to keep you longer. Let's just dive in straight to this interview. Hello, Marcus. Welcome to the Chasing Bandos podcast. A long time no see, mate. Long time no see. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for having me. Just to clarify, we uh, literally spent maybe 18 minutes talking uh, and then our conversation failed because of the way I've been recording this thing on this new website. Thank you, Zencaster. Uh, and uh, now we are trying this again. I am going to ask a, a little bit of a different questions and maybe we can come back to what you were saying before. Yeah, of course. Marcus, first of all, what I want to say is thank you for agreeing to, to do the interview. I know that we had, uh, <laughs> we had previously we scheduled the interview and I basically messed up and I uh, just like either forgot or whatever happened. I, I can't remember. Well, that's fine. Yeah. You were kind enough to forgive me and uh, and you, you decided to come back on the podcast. So like uh, kudos to you, man. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, of course. It's just fun to to be on the podcast. So no worries. <laughs> that's that's good. That's great. That's great. And I, you, you, I think you have this like this famous Norwegian sense of humor. You know, like totally not dry. Like this amazing sense of humor that like Scandinavian people have. <laughs> yeah, maybe maybe we are taking it from like the Norwegian people is taking it from the Danish people. You know, they do they have a lot of influence in like Scandinavia, the Danes. Well, I think we are like the Norwegian is having like some good some good TV shows and the Danish is like maybe having the better like uh, crime TV shows and stuff like that. So I think we are influencing each other. Yeah. Oh, I see. So, but what is it in Scandinavia? What is it like? Because obviously there is, there's four of you guys. What's like the relationship? Like, it's like, oh, like Danish. Yeah. We like, we envy the Danish. We hate the Swedes and like Finnish, like, uh, who cares? Like, what is that? Like, what is the, what is the, like the, from your point of view, a Norwegian point of view, what's the, like the relationship in Scandinavia? In Scandinavia? Uh, well. Are there any animosities? I'm not sure. I'm not going to comment that. It's like. 
<laughs> I don't want to start any new wars between the Danish people and because you see, like in China, they like super obsessed with like Korean pop culture and like Korean TV shows and stuff like that. Like obviously South Korean. I know you went to North Korea, but uh, yeah. I'm talking about like South Korean stuff. Like they loved like the the Japanese like manga and uh, so like China is like heavily influenced with that kind of stuff. So I was just thinking like, what's the kind of relationships the old Scandinavia? Well, I think like for the Norwegian people we had like some years ago we had a really good like teenager tv show that became really like international and famous in not only denmark or sweden but also like in china and in france and belgium and everything like i actually think they remade it in all those countries in their own language of course what was it called a scum it's about like um, a teenage group that is uh, that is like going to school together and yeah a lot of things is happening so yeah <laughs> <laughs> wait is it called scum because like british english scum has a very specific meaning yeah i know i forgot about that <laughs> fuck <laughs> yeah that's the norwegian uh, that's the norwegian for shame <laughs> oh i see okay all right okay yeah. i've never heard of it but yeah. but i'm sure it's it's quite famous <laughs> <laughs> okay so this is just in case people uh, forgotten after our the, the first six minutes of our conversation this is yeah. still uh, the chasing band podcast and still urbex podcast we are a little bit off because of the initial audio problems that we had but i'm promising promising from now only urbex talk yeah marcus you are norwegian you are the first norwegian being interviewed for this podcast currently live in oslo correct yeah correct but you are from bergen the yeah. another city because essentially there are two cities in in norway bergen <laughs> and oslo and uh, <laughs> no nothing else like not yet <laughs> <laughs> There's no other cities there. Now tell me this, what is the urbex scene in Norway, urbex like? Well, the the Norwegian urbex scene, you can say it's really small. Most of the people that is doing it here knows each other, you know, and or have experienced each other or met each other, you know. And in Oslo, you know, we have like a small community that is usually exploring together or trying to make the scene better, you know. Uh, but from Bergen, it's like mm. only a few people that is doing it like in the urbex way, you know. When I started first doing it in Bergen, I usually went alone, but I also had some friends I brought with me on different places. From Bergen, it was actually the place where I started going abroad and exploring in Belgium and Germany, traveling the world before I moved to Oslo. But you can say that the big different difference is that Oslo is a much bigger city with a lot of more people. And of course, then it will be some kind of community here other than it's not in Bergen. Mm. What made you start this and when did you start this? I started it in 2010, came across it on like a forum where I just like saw some photos and I don't know, it was just like exciting to see something that is so close to home but it's something so different from what you're usually seeing. I went there with my dad and it, it was a abandoned train tunnel 
that had been abound for several years. Yeah, we went in and took some photos, just explored it, you know. But for me, it was such fascinating thing. And yeah. What do you mean by like, it was so close to home? So like, did you always feel like this is something that you always wanted to do? Actually, I mean, because Bergen is not that big. So it was actually close to where I lived. <laughs> and Oh, you mean like... <laughs> Yeah, literally. it was literally. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Oh, okay. but, but, but it was like, the, the, the weird thing is that when I was younger, I was, uh, because in Bergen, we have like a huge problem with homeless people and drug addicts. And I was actually like the school I went to had like bound school next to it, where a lot of drug people went and it was so much needles and stuff like that. I was always the guy that was standing outside while people went inside the school and explored it, you know? Mm. But then something changed and I was just like, I started to be fascinated about the places and stopped being scared of the places as well, you know. And you mentioned this previously to me that you are quite open with your family about what you do. You just said about going and exploring with your dad. Like, so what is this kind of relationship with with your family and an urban? Well... I don't know. They've always been really supportive about my hobbies and what I'm doing. They always supported me. And when it came to exploring, they quite didn't understand why in the world I would go into places like this, but they supported me with it. And when we had family holidays when I was younger, um, it was always set of time to do some exploring together. Like my mom is not that oh, much... Really? Yeah, my mom is not that much into it, but my dad is joining me on my adventures and finding it's like really fascinating himself. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Yes. It, the whole family going on holidays <laughs> together and then guys going off. Mom would stay on the like the, you know, on the beach somewhere like sunbathing and then you guys go off and, uh, and do some exploring together. Wow. So cool. Yeah, it's pretty funny to see like my dad climbing over a huge fence and then crawling through the asbestos tunnel into a abandoned mental hospital. It's it's really oh, wow, funny. cool. So, do you have any sort of stories with like exploring with your dad? Yeah, well, I have from from Italy in 2017. That was like the last family holiday we had. And uh, I had like put up like a plan with a bunch of places I wanted to see. You know, it was the first time I went to Italy and I knew that it was some really beautiful places. So we went to a really famous place that is called Manicomio DR. That is like a huge about mental hospital. I was just blown away when I was researching the different places. And so my dad and I, we drove like two hours to the place and we got there and it was like okay how the fuck are we going to get in okay we need to climb over the front gate so we climbed over the front gate like really huge gates climbed in and then we found like the tunnel and we started like crawling through it really crawling through the tunnel then we got in you know took some photos and he was also like having his camera with him and took some photos as well and then we went outside uh, but we couldn't leave at the front gate so we started like climbing over the wall i just remember because like the manicomio is famous for that a local farmer is having sheep and stuff like that uh, inside um, the territorium. So suddenly we had like 20 sheep coming running after us when we were like halfway over the wall and then jumping the wall and they are just standing and staring <laughs> at us. 
but also <laughs> we went to we went to like one of the most beautiful abandoned places italy and i think in the world that is like the fairy tale castle in northern italy uh, where everything it's like 200 rooms with different teams so we went there like early in the morning it was like two in the night or something and he climbed first up two stories high and then inside a really small window and we got in you know and waited for the sunrise and it was just like really really cool experience to experience that with him because he he was showing the same expression as me that it was really amazing to see, you know. But the funniest part is like when the sun is up and this is in the middle of a public park and we are need to get out as well. And we need to get out like the really tiny window and then climb down the balcony and then over a fence again, you know. It's good memories. Yeah, I can imagine. Wow. Wow. I interviewed Dan from England and he was telling me how he had this experience when he was younger going with his mom. I think this is kind of like a bit of a unique experience, right? Yeah, it is. Uh, With your parents. Um, Like I said, cannot imagine doing this myself with my parents. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, I even had my grandma with me because my mom is not into doing that kind of stuff. But my grandma was actually finding it really interesting, you know. What? Yeah. <laughs> you did it with your grandma? Yeah. we. I, How old is she? She was 74, I think, actually. She passed away last year. But the last memory like we had was oh, like, we yeah, we went on a small road trip uh, to a bound power plant that just shut down. It was like it was no easy way in and she's used to going with me. But the only way into this power plant was like a really, really tiny bathroom window, really high up. Uh, and she was like, well, I'm not getting in there, of course, but of course you can try. But she didn't believe me when I told her like, okay, I, I will give it a try. So I started climbing up and then going like I'm usually going on tiny entries is face first. So <laughs> I'm going face first into the bathroom and almost falling straight into the bathroom. And she's like pushing me inside with my feet. And I don't know, but I'm somehow being able to turn around. And then I got into the power plant, you know, while she was standing outside. And I got my photos and then I need to get out again. Then <laughs> It wasn't possible to go out face first, so I need to go out with the feet again. And it was just really funny experience. Yeah, let me just say, like, I'm sorry that she passed away. But at the same time, this is like so unique. It is. That you yes. went exploring with your grandma. That's just like, wow. <laughs> yeah. So I guess those would be like your, your last memories with her. Wow. It is. It is indeed. It's a really nice memory to have. Wow. Marcus, tell me this. Do you have like a special place or do you have favorite exploring place that you went to? Yeah, I think like we talked about earlier that every place for me is is special. You know, every place for me is unique. But what is like the greatest like adventure I had is probably Kazakhstan. To Baikonur Cosmo. Right. Walk me through this uh, this journey and I'll kind of stop you along the way and ask you some questions. Yeah, of course. Well, it all started like many years ago where I got like a rocket and um, space launcher from a toy from my grandpa. 
and that like always stuck with me and then in 2017 i met some uh, i went with some norwegian guys to paris to explore the catacombs there and i met some german guys there uh and we spent two days underground paris just relaxing and partying and exploring and they became like really good friends of me and we stayed in touch we went to fukushima uh, the year after together me and german guys and a guy from austria and then we like i don't know we just started talking about baikonur and how how cool it would be to experience it since in that time of age it wasn't that many people that had went there and we just had made the fukushima exclusive so we started planning and researching like we are always doing because for us it's really important to plan down to the smallest detail and know everything since it's a really risky uh, adventure and we both know like what the outcome could be if we got caught so we talked with the people that we knew had been there and got a lot of like information the information we could get and we also like I told you earlier that we started like researching when it would be like rocket launch and stuff like that because we knew it would be higher security and everything because it's still military area and both from the russian military and both the kazakhstan military so we did all the research and bought uh, plane tickets to kishloda so i actually traveled from bergen to helsinki and then moscow uh, kishloda russian personnel would have to travel to baikonur that's why there is a direct flight from moscow to kishloda i've just learned that from yeah. you in our previous conversation yeah exactly you mentioned some guys and you decided to go there you mentioned fukushima we will go there in a moment yeah. after the buran story so first impression when you arrived in the lovely lovely little town Kizilorda. <laughs> i think that's how i that's how i pronounce it that lovely tiny airport what's the what's the first impression there well we're like wondering where in the world we are like it's so tiny and from above because we landed early early in the morning it was like a really weird experience because it's not much light around the surrounding from like landing in Moscow where you have the big city to landing in Kishloda where it's almost nothing other than desert. So we are landing and we are wondering like what in the world are we doing here? You know, we are getting on the bus to the terminal and then we are at the border patrol or like the passport control. And luckily for us um, or our Lithuanian friend that joined me, my German friend, he spoke uh, Russian. So we are standing there and he's trying to explain to the passport control like what what in the world like a German and Norwegian guy is doing here together with him in uh, the little town of Kishloda. Just the shopping experience, like we heard the the supermarket in the center of Kishloda has like amazing like sale and that's why we yeah. came came here. Like what yeah. how's that is that hard to comprehend? Like come on. Exactly. But they actually have really good food at supermarket. Did you hear or did this guy did this guy like tell you what he told the the officials? Not really. They like were, the reason why you guys came? I think we just said we were on holiday and wanted to experience Kazakhstan, you know, in a different way. Uh, but the problem was that like in our backpacks <laughs> And and you did. 
And you yeah, did. we did. We did, exactly. But in our backpacks, we had like camouflage clothes and everything, you know. So, and I had like a 70 liter backpack on me. A little bit suspicious, but... Uh, a little but bit yeah. suspicious, yeah. Sure. Technically, going into Baikonur Cosmodrome, you're like, you're really leaving Kazakhstan and yeah. you're entering another country. So like, technically, <laughs> they, they yeah. shouldn't, shouldn't care. Yeah. Too much. <laughs> now you are in this lovely 1975 type of uh, Soviet, post-Soviet town, yeah. Kisloda. You must have like, you spent some time in the town before you head off to do your space mission, right? Yeah. Well, we actually went to a motel, like really, really shitty motel. And we had some sleep where we were trying to like sleep without having any bed bugs or similar stuff that the hotel could bring. And then we had lunch and we actually went and got some Russian SIM cards to our phones. Uh, and from there we... Okay. Yeah. yeah that's a smooth move, yeah. Yeah. And from there we went to the supermarket and got all of the water and food for our trip. I'm just wondering like if those people in the supermarket, if they like have like certain opinion about the foreigners coming to their town, because they must be like, wait, they, they always buy so much water. Like what is going on? Like are they missing water in Europe or something? Like <laughs> well, but, the, the, okay, yeah, so the funny thing well, was actually when we went in the supermarket we had our like uniform like the camouflage closing on because we were going straight to Baikonur. So I guess it looked really weird when we came with like uh, two shopping carts full of water and food and candy and stuff like that. How much water are we talking about? Um, I think we had 12 liter of water each and that was going to last three days if I'm not sure. Oh, yeah. That is crazy. On top of everything else that you have to carry, that is crazy. You see, the reason I'm asking is because when I was training for this, I conditioned myself to survive on like six liters. Mm. So 12 is uh, 12 is a big number to carry. Did you guys stash it along the way or did you, did you carry the whole thing with you? We carried the whole thing in our backpacks uh, because, you know, it was Crazy like, people. yeah, it was like the warmest season, like we talked about earlier, that it was like July. Oh, right. Yes. Yeah. So we had everything in our backpacks. I had huge tripod with me and I had camera gear, sleeping bag and everything, you know. Oh, my God. Why did you take a tripod with you? Like you can survive without the tripod. That's like extra five kilograms. Uh, yeah, you Crazy. can say that. That's crazy. <laughs> you know, I wanted, I was like, you know, I, I'm not going to stand in the hangar trying to get a photo and it won't be good. You know, I really like, okay, fuck it. I'm bringing my heavy tripod with me, you know. <laughs> That's just insane. Let's actually talk about what happened, your your journey through the desert and yeah. how you got in. Like, t tell, tell me everything. Well, we, we got dropped off in the middle of the desert, uh, a barn farm. And then we paid the driver because we had rented a driver. We paid him like half of the money. And then we left our belongings with him and he drove home and we turned off our phones and we started walking. To be honest, like the first minutes was just horrible because it's like walking on a beach and we are walking in heavy clothes, heavy backpack um. and it's sand. 
and it was just pure hell and I'm like wondering what in the world have I said yes to so we are walking and we are walking and before you go go on yeah sorry before you before you go on could you explain why did you turn your phone off what sort of agreement did you have with the driver yeah so like coming back yeah we had said like a day and a time that he was going to be at the same spot he dropped us off and we turned our phone off because I the people I talked with earlier had said that the Russian military had some kind of like device that picked up the signal uh, from our phones and cameras and stuff like that. So that's why we turned off our phones because we didn't want to risk anything. Okay. Yeah. The reason I'm asking is because like you went in July, I went in October after you and I'm comparing this in my head to my experience, how it was for me, obviously going a few months after you. But anyway, okay, so carry on. You now are walking in pretty much this Sahara desert in the middle of July. What time of day are we talking about? Uh, after this or the sun was going down. Because then we had like calculated that we needed to be at the hangar when the sun was rising or before the sun was rising so nobody would see us. So we had like, I don't know, less than 12 hours to walk. So we are starting to walk and after like, I think it's five kilometers, uh, suddenly I'm seeing a jeep coming towards us. And I'm telling the guys like, guys, we, we need to hide. And they are like, no, 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 it's it's far away. And I'm like, guys, it's coming straight towards us. We need to hide now. And then in like less than a second, suddenly we are seeing the Jeep is really, really, really close to us. And we are running out of the road and then we are hiding in some bushes. And the Jeep is driving right past mm. us. And in the Jeep, it was two military guys with AK-47. Wow. Yeah. So we were like, oh shit. So, but they didn't see you, obviously. No, they didn't see us, but we were like, shit, they see our footprints and we hope that our driver had gotten out of the zone, you know, because it's a military zone. And then we are like, okay, we need okay. to keep off the road. And we have like the GPS and we have the map we have made together on our phones. So we are starting to walk our route and the sun is going down and it's getting pitch black and we can't use our flashlights mm. because we don't want to get any attention from military or any other kind of people it's in the middle of the night and you know in the in the desert there's so many kind of bushes you know and i'm walking and walking and walking and i'm tripping in those bloody bushes all the time and i'm thinking to myself like what mm. the fuck am i doing here and I'm like, almost like crying because I'm thinking like, oh my God, what have I done? You know, like, what the fuck am I doing in the middle of a desert in Kazakhstan in a military zone? So we are walking and like the Lydian guy is, yeah, the Lydian guy is like really like walking to a target, you know, I'm like trying to keep up with them and we are walking and we're walking and then we are coming to like one of the areas that we have marked as like danger like danger zone and then because we know that usually they have patrols next to a tra uh, train track before like the salt uh, salt flake that is on the other side and suddenly my Lithuanian guy is falling deep down in a hole and we are standing there couldn't turn on our flashlights or anything so what happened to him uh well he fell down it was a trap and we are standing there with our backpacks and dragging him up from the hole and still we couldn't turn on our flashlights and we didn't know if or how many holes it was we couldn't see anything either so we are like walking without having any 
possibility to know if it was more holes like really scared to fall down but luckily we, none of us fell down or holes and we got on to the um, salt lake and then suddenly it was that much sand to walk on and it was easier and we are like taking a small break those salt lakes that you're talking about on the map are you talking about those like white patches and where the ground was a little bit more much much easier yeah it, it wasn't like up and down it was pretty flat yeah totally hard um possible to walk on without like yeah. being exhausted when i was walking yeah i was just like trying to get to them and they always seem so far away yeah exactly it's like it's for like out of my memory it's like the last part of the um, the walk to Baikonur. Then yeah. we took a break there uh, after walking for like 10 hours or something. And we are sitting there and we are realizing we are exhausted and we are realizing that shit. The sun is starting to go up. Should we keep going into the rockets area or should we try to hide? But then we were like, okay, fuck it. We, we just need to walk. And then the uphill to Baikonur is starting, you know, and we are walking and I'm like, almost small running to the top of the hill and when we came up to the top of the hill we are like looking down to the whole like military area and rocket silo and everything and we are realizing that holy shit we are so close now but still it was like five kilometers left and the sun was fully up oh right wow keep keep going keep going yeah so we were actually like taking a break before we started walking down to the silos but we could see the silos like the or target you know and we are like it's five in the morning the sun is fully up and we were like holy shit if somebody sees us now then we are fucked the, the whole walk on 12 hours will, would be gone for nothing you know so we are all like walking really fast looking around us all the time trying to see if we could see anybody okay and then what happened um, <laughs> well my German friend was like really exhausted and we needed to take breaks but I was like my adrenaline was rushing at, a, at that time and I was like like motivated to just walk and walk and walk to get to the hangar and get inside, you know, to take my final break after walking for so long. And we are taking breaks and then we are like, okay, we just we just need to get inside now because it's getting really dangerous. And we are walking and getting underneath the fence close to the hangar. And we are walking around the hangar and the entrance that we knew about was suddenly closed. And we were like, oh shit. And then we are getting around one of the corners of the hangar and the window was open. So the entrance that you thought, was it like a, a window that put like, they put like some metal uh, yes. like barrier on top of it and they kind of sealed that, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it's funny enough because I talked to Nick, Nick Wonder, like uh, on Instagram, he's Nick Wonder Photography. And he told me that when he was inside, yes. when he was inside Buran, can you believe it? They came in and start wielding this entry. So yeah. he got literally trapped inside Buran the hangar. And obviously he went in May. So you went in July after him. Yeah, so you exactly. came across that. Yeah. And then what happened? How did you manage to get inside? Uh, well, I actually talked with Nick and... He told me about some entries that, that they needed to exit through because the original entry was sealed. But then we were like so exhausted after walking for like 12, 13 hours and the exit that they had used was so high up that we didn't have any possibility to use those entries, you know. So we walked around and I actually think that the entry that got sealed for him was actually open for us. So 
I climbed in the window while the guys were standing outside and I opened the door into the hangar and I'm seeing both of the space shuttles in front of me. And I'm like, guys, guys, it's here. It's open. And we are then climbing inside. Oh, wait. So, wait, I, I didn't. So you you climb through the window on the ground floor? Yeah, on the ground floor. Yeah. So you see, that's what I remember. I had to lift the, like a metal barrier. I have to lift it up and climb through the window. Yeah. That was totally like broken off when we went actually. Yes. So I think someone, the, someone must have gone after yeah. him and do that. Yeah. You know? And I think they basically gave up on like, keep repairing this stuff because it, it keeps getting broken. Okay. So you went inside and what was your first impression? What was your first feeling? when you saw those two beauties there? Well, it was like really relief to see that they are still there, you know, and that we made it after such a long walk. But still we couldn't relax because we needed to find a place to hide in case of like the morning patrols would come. But then we started like finding the stairs up to, I think it was the third floor. The entrance was like sealed off with some kind of blue cable ties that was numbered by the Russian military. And we were like, okay, if we break this off, then the Russian military will know that somebody is in there. So we needed to walk down to the ground floor and then we needed to climb up from the hangar two or three floors uh, floors up to get to our sleeping spot. Did you by any chance leave any sort of like thermal blanket behind? No, nothing. It was super warm when we went so we almost did use our sleeping bags oh okay okay when i was there it was so bloody cold you know i put every single piece of clothing on me and i slept in the sleeping bag with the shoes on with everything on and i was still still super <laughs> cold and then later on i found some sort of thermal blanket that someone left behind what i'm interesting is your feeling of seeing those shots of seeing space shuttles it was like like i said like it was really really amazing and it was amazing to see like actually huge they are because i didn't expect them to be that mm. <laughs> bloody huge you know and feeling that small in a hangar it was just like Incredible. super yeah it's super crazy and it's like seeing photos online from suddenly standing in front of it and it's just unbelievable you know however you imagine how big they are they are bigger than yeah, whatever you imagine they like they're they they like just 10 like times bigger incredibly huge you went to third floor am i the only person who went all the way to the top i don't know but no no no, no. so you went to the third floor you guys set up shop there and did you have some sort of system with the security what was the your experience like after after you got inside well uh what actually happened was that we found like a place to put out our camp for me i was actually really dehydrated and i had like kind of like a panic attack because it was so warm and for me as a norwegian guy i'm not used to that kind of heat so my german friend was like giving me some salts in the water and trying like to or sugar in the water trying to like make me like relax you know and then we made some food and we Mm. yeah because we hadn't eaten you know since we left the hotel and that was like super long ago so i got some food and tried to get some sleep and stuff like that before we went out and explored the hangar. But yeah, we actually went up to the top floor as well. Did you have any sort of system with the security? Was that someone was on the lookout? Actually not. It, it was kind of weird because we, we went up and we just 
took our photos, but we had like a main rule that we would go down to the ground floor. We would just keep up in uh, the upper floors and explore those parts and wait until it was dark to go down on the ground floor. So we went up, we took our photos, and when we were at the top level or the top floor, we are suddenly seeing to the rocket uh, silo, and suddenly there we are seeing the the famous uh, military police car standing outside their rocket silo. Oh, oh! So that you saw them standing outside when you were inside the Buran hangar. Was there any security coming inside that building? Not that I know of. Actually, I think it was. I think we were really lucky because we were like we hadn't been seen. We weren't loud. We had our phones off and everything. And not as far as I know, I don't think we had any patrols coming into the building because even like when we were sleeping, mm. we couldn't close the door to the room we were sleeping in. And both my German fl- friend and my Lithuanian friend. They were like really making a lot of noise when they were sleeping. Snoring. snoring. Yeah, snoring. Yeah, they were snoring super loud. And I'm kind of blown away that like wow. if it was actually some kind of patrol checking the building, they would definitely have heard it, you know. Wow. Yeah. So when I was there, I went all the way to the top floor. And that's where we slept. It was so cold. The guy who was with me, he was like weeping from cold. Like he was just like... Eh. Like th- like this. So I couldn't, I literally couldn't sleep because of that. If he was snoring, I would also wouldn't be able to fall asleep. Like someone fall asleep first and start snoring. I, I can't take it. Wow. So that's, uh, that's crazy. You obviously stay there for, for like a whole day and then you move during night to the second yes. uh, building. Yeah, we had like our alarm clock on our phone and we had set, I don't remember because it's some time ago, but we had like an alarm clock that we would switch hangers uh, before sunrise. So we wake up, pack all of our stuff, uh, go downstairs and then switch hangers. Actually, our main problem when we came to Rocket Silo was that we didn't find any entry at all and the sun was starting to go up and we were standing outside like, what the fuck are we going to do now? It's too late to go back to the other hangar. And then last minute, the Lithuanian guy is finding an entry and we are managing to get inside. Then we are relaxing at the bottom floor before the sun is going up and we are taking photos on the ground floor and then moving further up in the silo where we are setting our camp. Was it easy to get inside to find the rocket for you? Well, for us, it was actually a window that we found. But like I said, it was like really, really difficult to find an entry because everything seemed like it was sealed off. Uh, When we got inside, I think we actually managed to find it pretty quick. But yeah, actually... Like, like I remember it was a lot of corridors and stuff like that, that we needed to like walk and uh, it was like cable tunnels uh, that we needed to like walk over uh, to get inside. And that's not easy with a heavy backpack, you know, and you're also really tired. There was this one room with like these big boilers and stuff. It was like something from like a Breaking Bad lab that gave me like a vibe of this, like a chemistry lab. Did you come across a room like that? I'm not sure. It was really early in the morning. So I think we were main, mainly focused on trying to like find the rocket, getting the force from the bottom and then going up and setting a camp. What was your impression when you saw that huge fucking rocket? 
<laughs> well, it was like, like you said now, it's it's really, really huge. And it's like uh, when you're thinking about the burns, like space shuttles, and you're thinking that they are huge. And then you're seeing the rocket, it's like 10 times more fucking huge than the space shuttles again, you know. And you're standing there and you're yeah. like looking up and you're like, what the fuck? How is this even possible, you know? Yeah. What is happening after you did your rocket? Because you went to that during... In, in the morning, right? Yeah, right. Have you guys spent the whole day in the rocket building and did you leave at night or did you still leave during the day? We actually left at the night because it was so crazy warm outside because like i said earlier it was like one of the warmest months and it was impossible to move through the desert in the day so we went upstairs and we made like a camp and then we uh, <laughs> kind of just died in there you know like just relaxing and mm. trying to survive and then we actually had our phones on and we are getting like a warning from like message warning saying that it would be up to like 50 degrees outside whoa Wait, explain that. What do you mean you're getting a warning? There's 15 people outside. What's, what's no, not 50 people, but 50 degrees like in the heat. Like the heat is getting crazy warm. Oh, <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. Sorry. I was just like thinking, what the hell? Okay. <laughs> yeah. So within two, three hours of like walking, exploring that you're pretty much done. And then you have this whole day of waiting, essentially. Exactly. And we actually had a problem with that after taking our photos and relaxing. The Lithuanian guy went to explore for himself and uh, take some photos. And suddenly he's coming back and saying that, okay, guys, outside it's like 20 military guys sitting outside on a military jeep. And that we couldn't make any sounds, we couldn't make any food, and we just needed to lie down and be quiet. What happens then? Like you said to me privately that I think you have some sort of stories on your way back, right? Like some, something yeah. happened. So after the sun went down, we packed our stuff and we got out without any problems and we are starting to walk back. And we are walking and we are walking far out and we are coming to the salt lake. And then the time is turning 12 o'clock and it's midnight and my friend is uh, my german friend is actually having birthday that day so we are like sitting down and taking photos of the milky way and singing a quiet happy birthday song to him and we are starting to pack up our stuff and we are walking towards the train train tracks and the road that is going next to train tracks and suddenly it's like it's really surreal experience because like you are in the middle of the deserts it's no kind of lights it's no kind of sound but suddenly on the road uh, next to a train track it's like moped going back and forward just a small light and we are sitting there in the dark like wondering like what the fuck is happening you know and we are sitting with binoculars and trying like, like to a motorcycle yeah like a motorcycle and we are sitting in a desert like with our binoculars and trying to understand what is going on and then suddenly uh, another car is coming and then we are looking like on our right like further down the road and we are just seeing like a convoy of uh, military vehicles and police vans coming with blue lights and we are like shit okay. shit 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 we need to run and we are running back and we are jumping into bushes and lying 
all the way down. I'm getting off my backpack and I'm lying in the middle of a cactus, you know, and it's like real pain. Mm. Uh, <laughs> and then we're like, okay, having our military hats on and my jacket and we're just trying to hide as best as, best as possible. And then the convoy is coming and also a train is coming on the train tracks. And suddenly they are turning on wow. like some spotlight, like really like powerful spotlight that is going out uh, straight towards us and we are lying totally still trying to hide and trying not to get seen because we are of course scared we will be shot if they are seeing us or seeing any kind of movements so the convoy is going past us and we are like okay we need to run after this is finished you know and we are running everything we can with our backpacks and over the train tracks trying not to fall in the hole that my friend fell in on the way to Baikonur and we are getting past everything and everything is going fine but the way back is just suddenly getting horrible because we are drinking up our water we don't have that much water left the sun is going up and it's just horrible you know and we have like five kilometers left that we are using like four hours on uh, so when we are finally getting back to the farm where we are going to be picked up I'm like getting back there and lying down on the sand, totally exhausted. And I'm starting to throw up and I'm not understanding like why I'm reacting so bad and the others are not reacting that bad, you know. And I'm trying to drink water, I'm trying to drink some soda and eat something because I remember that I hadn't had a chance to eat. I only ate like one time when we were at the space shuttle hangar. But my body is like totally exhausted. Then our driver's coming. He's like, okay, you need to take off all your clothes. I'm like, what? Yeah, you need to take off all your clothes. And I'm like, okay. I'm standing there like totally naked. And the guy is like pouring down water on me to try to get like past the dehydration i'm standing there oh, really wow. yeah i'm standing there and like shaking because i'm feeling so bad and then the driver is like looking at my leg and he's pointing at it and i could see that i have like some kind of like got bitten by something on my leg the Lithuanian guy and the driver is like talking russian and they're like oh maybe it's a scorpion bite and i'm like okay is it dangerous and i'm standing there like shaking and shaking and shaking and the driver is like well what month are we in because it can be deadly in some parts of a month you know in this year and we are like okay it's july and he's like nah it's not deadly then So I'm getting into the vehicle and we're driving, you know, back. But I'm still not getting any better and I'm still like feeling like shit. So what what was it? What was the... Uh, well, when we got to Moscow after being in uh, Kishlona uh, a day waiting for our plane, the bite was like healing and you could su- suddenly see that it was a snake bite. Oh, really? You got a snake bite? Yeah. And you don't know like when this happened? Uh, I maybe know, when you were in that ditch uh, yeah probably uh, and that's what we have figured out that probably it was when I was lying in that cactus <laughs> maybe it was like the snake layer there you yeah. inv- invaded the, the house of the snake yeah probably yeah. something like oh, that oh shit <laughs> you know thing, that's the thing about like uh, that desert the, the ups and downs the holes the stuff that it's in those holes, you constantly on alert. Uh, the the light that carries from that base, you just like 
freaking out nonstop, like you're on constantly on on the edge. Plus, when you're inside, there's a hangar. The hangar has so many broken windows, so you can like hear every little crack, every sound, and it just makes you super, super on edge. It is truly like nerve-wracking experience. Yeah, exactly. And it's like so many people are thinking that it's a easy adventure and that everybody can go and stuff like that, but. It's really not. Um, I think like people that want to experience it, they really should think about it before they are doing it because of course it can be dangerous and it's not fun to collapse in a desert where you have no possibility to get help or similar, you know. And especially if you pick July for your <laughs> for your expedition. <laughs> exactly. The thing is like one of the things I have definitely underestimated is how cold it gets at night. I guess for you is you did not expect it to be that hot. No, not at all. It was so super, super, super fucked up, to be totally honest. Did you see any horse shit or camel shit in that desert? No, not actually, but we saw a horse in the start. Really? Yeah, we had like, it was super big. Maybe the camels and like they come out in certain time of the year because honestly, Marcus, when I was there, I was literally like horse shit, camel shit, whatever <laughs> shit. There was so much shit in that desert. It was like unreal. What the fuck? Unreal. Okay. Well, no, we we didn't see we didn't see that much shit, but we actually saw a horse like in the start of the walk. We had like a horse coming suddenly running towards us, and we were like, "What the fuck?" Running. It was super bizarre, but suddenly he just stopped and disappeared. Wow. I've seen camels though. I've seen like a herd of wild camels when I was in the actually building, in the Buran building and I'm looking outside and I'm like, oh my God, there's like 20 camels just walking by the, the other hangar. Oh, They're really? just like walking there. I took a bunch of pictures of those. Yeah. I've never posted those. And now I'm thinking to myself, like I should, I should <laughs> post those, uh, those pictures because I, yeah. I, you know, I have quite a few of those. That, that's really crazy yeah. because I really wanted to see some camels but I didn't see any on the way and I was super disappointed by it. Now you have done the Baikonura. Could you tell me more about your experience in Fukushima? Well, that was also really cool experience you know because pretty much just the same as like Baikonur it was a lot of planning we had like we had one week to explore Fukushima and we had one week to explore Tokyo and it was actually one of my German friends as well that uh, didn't join me for Baikonur but he lived in uh, Tokyo at that time working and just taking a year in uh, Tokyo and he was the guy that invited me to to come to Japan and experience the Japanese culture and experience Fukushima. So he had actually been down to the Fukushima zone and like sneaking into the red zone and all the different like zones that was there at the time. Uh, that is not anymore. But the problem was that like some weeks before or uh, something like that, before we came down, he actually had been caught there by police uh, because the police is still patrolling the different zones uh, so he had been caught there and it's kind of like 
the scary thing with Japanese people is that you don't know, like they're acting like everything is fine and like they're happy and stuff like that. But for them, it's like really respectless to suddenly have some people that is not following the rules. He was worried that if he would be caught again, then he would end up in jail in Japan. So that was kind of like a bummer. And we got down to Tokyo and we had like an Airbnb outside the zone and we drove like every day to the zone and had like different stuff that we had researched and we even tried to even try to get like uh, permission from the government to explore the different ghost uh, cities we didn't get permission for it so then we needed to try to explore the stuff that were outside the uh, red zone and we it was super crazy like we went to different shopping malls or like stores food stores, gaming halls, um, stuff like that, and it, schools even. And it was like super crazy how those things were just like, it was open, you know, and we could walk straight in and how everything was left behind. It's not something that is that much common in the European scene, at least. Yeah, it's, it's almost like the Fukushima is like a time capture. It's like literally like post-apocalyptic world. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, it's it's super crazy. Like, especially with um, the school that we went to, everything was like left behind and like all the notebooks and everything and pictures and instruments and pianos and TVs and books. Everything was just standing there still. It was like somebody, somebody had just gone up and went, you know, and just disappeared. Can you explain a little bit about the different zones in Fukushima? Like, how does this work and which one did you do? You have like the green zone that is like the, cl- the clean zone that is safe. The government is saying that is safe for people to move back and stuff like that. Uh, and then you have the red zone that is still radioactive and dangerous to go into. And nobody are allowed to go into that zone because it's dangerous and nobody are allowed to move back there. People that have lived there once can have permission. I think it's like once in a week or something to go into the house and just look after it, you know. Uh, and you also had a yellow zone before i don't remember what's the difference between red and yellow zone but it was a yellow zone before but when we went it was only green and red zone and on every like road into the red zone it's standing a police officer watching over and the police is patrolling all the time and they have like a terminal cameras and stuff like that so it's really like high crazy japanese security So how did you manage to get inside? Well, we had like scouted out like on our maps and we had like where it was possible to park our car or try to hide our car. And we had like, we went to a nursing home that was in the red zone, but we didn't do any like super, super difficult or like two risky places to go to. It was always like close to the border between green and red zone so we had parked our car uh, outside in the green zone hiding it as best as we could then taking on our like hazmat suits and gas mask and everything to not get radiation on our stuff then we ran through the forest and got inside the building and took our photos and then left when it was dark this is something that absolutely fascinates me and i would love to to spend some time in Japan and go to Fukushima. And I feel like you have to hurry up with that, right? Because they 
they, they really make effort into like cleaning the cleaning the area. So yeah, I, I still hope there is a chance for me to go there. Yeah, at least like I really I really loved Japan because it's like such nice people and nice culture and good food. So for me, it's like I actually hope that I can go back not only for Fukushima but also seeing like some of the ghost islands and stuff like that that they have and just experience the abound places that Japan has to offer. Yeah, that's great. That's good. Keep me in mind. You <laughs> yeah, know, I'm course. only two hours away on on the plane. It's only like 12 hours flight <laughs> from Oslo. Yeah, you know, no, no biggie, no biggie. <laughs> no biggie. <laughs> uh, yeah. Also, I saw you exploring tunnels and mines. Well, in um, usually when I'm exploring in Norway, it's like, it's like, it's not that many people that are doing it. And for me, when I'm exploring in Norway, it's usually like a way for me to relax and clear my mind for from the daily busy days, you know. So then I'm usually going alone and just relaxing and clearing my head and making a experience because like for me you aren't making that much experience like place or like the surrounding if you're going and you are busy with other people. Like I'm having enough of that at work or at my spare time, you know. Because I can see you also like exploring like ships and power plants uh, is this still stuff in in Norway or this is like Europe well um, it's both like i think like the most beautiful power plants uh, are like in belgium or in france or in germany you know like uh, we have a lot of power plants but they are usually getting renovated or taken care of you know it's it's never going never going that far as being abandoned or shut down, you know, here anymore. But mm. power plants is definitely something that is really fascinating me of how, what is like yeah. helping us out in our daily life. And you also went to Hungary and I saw a picture of the, the famous plane graveyard in Hungary. Uh, do you have any stories with Hungary? Because like Hungary is a bit of a, sometimes could be a, like a tricky, tricky country to uh, to move around and deal with the locals. Well, not that much of like good stories actually from Hungary. We had a pretty like chill trip to it. We, the mixed graveyard, it was pretty relaxed. We had good planning already and everything. But actually the, the famous pole plant in Budapest, we had like big problems yeah. with. Yeah. Uh, we went there early in the morning. When we got there, like it was like five in the morning or something. And we were like ready to go inside and jump the fence. And suddenly it's, it's two other urbexers there just standing there and they are looking at me and they're like are you bgo and i'm like what how in the world do you know and they're like saying that they have been following my instagram stories and they're like yeah we we tried to contact you oh wow so, yeah that's so pretty cool actually you know it's pretty cool but but it was like not good to be that many people because like in the park there it's still security on the area because it's a private park and when we jump the fence straight away security is coming running and we are all like running and trying to hide and we are like six people lying straight next to our like staircase outside the guards is coming they are opening the gate and they are like standing with a shitty flashlight trying to find us and we are lying there like 
try to like hide you know and it's, it's like two huge hungarian guys standing there like security and of course they are seeing us and they are like screaming at us and pushing us and like not saying a thing in like only saying like forbidden forbidden and then we're getting out of there and they are like running after us and we are going to the other side of the park where some other guy other security guard is like talking to us and like telling us that it's forbidden and they will call the police and stuff like that yeah i think they must be used to different people trying to jump that fence because from my understanding the power plant is not technically fully abandoned there's a part of it that's that's not. There's still people kind of working there. From my understanding, I could be wrong. I did interview Ryan about the New England and he was telling me the story behind that when he was there with Steve Ronin. And also like to find this iconic control room, it is really tricky, apparently. This place used to be, you can ask for permission uh, to go there, but it's no longer, uh, sorry, not ask for permission, but they used to like do the tours. Marcus, do you have exploring stories that you would like to share that I maybe I didn't I didn't mention so far? Well, I have two kind of funny stories that were it's not even funny, but it's like kinda kinda ruined exploring for me last year. Okay. The first one is first one is from Oslo actually, where I went with like a friend of mine. Uh, to what I thought was like uh, about the nursery home. And we are getting there and things are looking like that it's not in use anymore, at least. We are walking around trying to find an open window or anything like that. And nothing is open. But then I'm realizing that, oh, it's like a small like bunker door, like bunker window door that is possible to drag open because it was still open. It was just like really hard to drag open. So I'm getting that one open and we are jumping in and we are in the basement of the building and it's so much stuff left behind and closing from old people and paintings and all that stuff that was pretty much in the building when it was in use and we are like holy shit this is super cool and super rare and we are then walking to the bunker door that's going further in the building and it's open and suddenly we are in the hallway of the building and it's non-alarm or cameras or anything and we are walking upstairs and going upstairs to like almost the top floor and then like saying okay let's walk like take photos from the top floor and then go like to floor to floor you know this was in the winter time of norway it's getting super early dark um so we thought that since it was still electricity in the building we could turn on the light <laughs> stupid enough uh, so we are turning on the light and taking some photos and stuff like that and and then we are walking down another floor and standing there taking photos and uh, i'm packing up my stuff you know and in the hallway it's like to get into the floor we are all on from the stairs it's like a small window in the door and it was always light in the staircase and I'm sitting waiting for my friend to get finished I packed up all my stuff and I was ready to go and I'm sitting like in a couch and suddenly I'm seeing the light in the staircase is going off and I'm like uh, dude the light just went off and he's like ah oh, no worries it's probably like automatically or something like that and then two seconds later it's going on again and I'm like, shit, what is happening now? 
So I'm turning off the light from our floor where we are on. And he's packing down his stuff and we are sitting down in the couch, both of us, just like trying to not freak out. <laughs> and he's like sitting with his back against the door, like we are sitting in like a lounge, like couch lounge. And suddenly a guy uh, is standing in the window looking in and I'm like, dude, sit totally still it's a guy there in the window and the door is going slowly up and we are sitting there like in like yellow clothes like worker clothes because it's super cold outside and we're like oh shit this is like a horror horror movie and the light is going on and the guy's just standing there and looking at me and i'm looking at him and we're he's like hello and we're like sitting there like feeling super stupid and he's like hello and then he's coming like like we are seeing the full him and he's standing there with a crowbar in his hand. Oh shit. Yeah. And he's looking at me and I'm looking at him and he's like, who are you? And I'm like, who are you? And he's like standing there with his crowbar, like he really huge crowbar. And I'm like, dude, are you walking with a crowbar? Getting like small, like offensive and like uh, scared, you know? And he's like looking at me like, who the fuck do you think you are? And I'm like, dude, why are you walking with a crowbar? Are you going to kill me or something? And he is super confused, you know. And then I'm standing up and going to him, you know. And he's just standing there, like, super confused. And he's like, yeah, how, how did you get in? And we were like, well, what are you doing here? And we were like, well, we are just taking photos, you know. And we found it interesting that it was a band. And he was like, well, you can't do that, you know. Got really angry. And we are like trying to calm down the situation and talking with him and like explaining to him what we were doing there and, and telling him that we could show where we had got, got in and stuff like that. And he was like, nope, he was going to call the police. He was going to take photos of us. And I was like, dude, sorry, but we are just going to leave. You can't do anything to stop us, you know. And then we are running down the staircase into the basement again. And then we are realizing that the door that we got in from like outside was sealed from the outside. And in the minute I'm realizing that that entry was sealed, the guy is closing the other door behind us and locking it up. And I'm standing there like banging on the door, like screaming to him, like, dude, you can't do this. This is illegal. And he's like, nope, bye. I'm calling the police. Okay. And did he? Uh, so we were sitting there for like 50 minutes. Uh, I'm like calling my dad, like, yo, dude, uh, we are locked up in a basement in Oslo. Can you? And he's like, okay, just sit there for some time more. Maybe the police will come. And I'm starting like to freak out because we didn't have any water, we didn't have any food, and it's like past the hour. And suddenly a police car is like, we're hearing somebody on the outside and they are like, hello, this is the police, is anybody in there? And I'm like, kind of like scared and irritated at the same time, like, yeah, can you open this door? And they are like, yeah. Uh, move back from the door and I'm like okay what is going to happen now you know like are they going to break up the door or something then the door is going up and two police officers are standing there like looking at us like what the fuck is going on you know and I'm trying like to calm myself down and they are like okay step out here and the guy is standing there in the hallway and I'm like super super angry and scared and like dude like this was not going to like it was not like you didn't need to do this you know we could just have talked together and everything would be fine and he's like standing there and coming with like mean words and stuff like that and we're talking with the police 
officers and they're like separating us from him and we are like explaining them what we are doing and how we got in and all that stuff and they are like like not understanding you know and not understanding what we are doing and like telling us that we need to get another hobby and yeah all that stuff you know and just making us <laughs> stupid <laughs> get another hobby marcus Yeah, get it all. They were basically saying that, like, get another hobby. Like, like if we are taking you again, like, you're getting busted of us, then I will send you to prison. And I'm, like, super pissed, like, telling them. They just let you go. There was no repercussions. Uh, well, w what actually happened was that um, the guy told us that he wouldn't, like, report us for burglary. We deleted our photos. So we deleted our photos. And I told them that I want to report him for, like, going around with a crowbar and locking us in. And they are just, like, responding to us like that. Uh, he was probably scared. It was two of you and stuff like that. But, yeah, they actually let us go. Mm, I see. Wow. Okay. So that's the story number one. What's the story number two? The story number two is uh, <laughs> even more like, but that was actually a more nice experience. In Bergen, we have like a lot of bridges that is going around the city center, like really huge bridges. And underneath one of them, it's like going like passage, like for working, like underneath um, the cars. And you have like a really nice okay. view over the water and everything. So... I realized that they were like, had like put up a scaffolding, that platform. And I'm like going there and the gates to the working area is totally open and it's holes in the fence and everything. And I'm like just going there with my helmet and yellow clothes, you know, like to not make anyone panic, you know. And it was just to like step up to the scaffolding and walking up and I'm suddenly like underneath the bridge and walking there and like feeling like super like everything is going perfect and it's a warm nice summer whole whole day and taking photos and being super happy and waiting for like the sun to go down and i'm walking to the other uh, end of the bridge and like trying to see if it's a way down from there but it wasn't so when i'm turning around after like relaxing and being on the bridge uh, for like an hour suddenly i'm realizing that underneath me it's a police boat and i'm like shit okay maybe maybe it's not for me so <laughs> i'm starting to walk and they're like just standing there and looking at me and i'm walking and walking and walking and i'm like oh shit please please Don't be bad luck now. I had such a good day, you know. And I'm coming to the end of the scaffolding and I'm seeing two police officers standing on the other side of the fence. I'm like, shit, what am I doing now, you know? And I'm turning around and trying to go back to the other side of the bridge again. But then the police boat is turning on its blue lights and spotlight on me. And I'm like, fuck, okay, 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 what I'm doing? Okay, I need to relax now. And I just walk down casually like down out the front uh, front door of the scaffolding and they are stand they haven't figured out that the main gate is open so they are standing on the other side of the fence and i'm like hello what's going on and is everything good and they're like yeah well we got some calls of you being up there alone you know and we were worried that you were going to commit suicide or something i was like no commit suicide no i'm just checking the scaffolding and just taking a look you know before i'm taking off 
today and everything is good. And they're like, okay, yeah, no worries. If you're working there and if you have permission to be there, then everything's fine. And I'm like, yeah, of course, uh, nothing else. And they're like asking for my information and what company I'm from and stuff like that. And I'm like, okay, shit, I can't, I can't lie to them anymore. And I'm like, okay, sorry, guys. You know, I, I was just up there taking some photos. I didn't want to scare anyone. And they're like okay well then we need to talk to you how can we get you out and they're like it's like barbed wire fence and everything and i'm like well the main gate is open and they're like the main gate is open and i'm like yeah the main gate is open what the fuck like super like and they're like and it was always open and i'm like yeah it's always open so i'm coming out to them and we are standing and they're taking my information and we're standing and talking and they're like well what in the world are you doing up there you know and i'm like well i'm taking photos it's like my interest and my hobby and i'm like i i really love like seeing places that people aren't usually seeing and they're like well i don't think that's allowed (laughs) and a new hobby uh, yeah and they were like and they were like well you aren't a graffiti writer right and i was like no and i'm opening my camera backpack and showing them all my equipment and stuff like that and they're like okay well they're like trying to figure out in the head like what in the world they're going to do with me you know and they are like yeah yeah, and they're like super confused and they are like telling me that it was like two ambulances and firefighters everything was like on their way because they thought i was going to jump from the bridge and if i hadn't come down earlier they would have closed down the car traffic and everything just because of me walking there with my helmet and yellow clothes closing and everything how all this ended well it actually ended with them like talking with me and showing me photos and telling my whole story about kashakstan and fukushima and everything and they're like looking at me and looking at the photos and they're like okay let me just call the police attorney and they're like calling the lawyer and they are like okay well now you can listen we are not going to press any charges but you are getting like that you aren't allowed to climb anything for 24 hours and like any scaffolding yeah they're like like a slap on the wrist yeah they're like okay if you climb anything in 24 hours and you're getting busted then it will be serious consequences but other than that go home you know and i'm like okay okay sorry and then i'm driving home and i'm like what the fuck just happened you know but you know what you know what marcus like all the american explorers when they listening to this they just like honestly the <laughs> the their face must be in their hand thinking to themselves europe is some sort of heaven you know like the police are talking to you and the police is just like letting you go giving you 24 hours yeah i mean okay all right i'll wait 25 then and then i'm (laughs) to climb again wow wow it was super super weird like atmosphere like because they were actually thinking that it was like some kind of industrial spy or something taking photos like that but the guy was like the other police officers that saw my photos he was like no he's an artist and stuff like that yeah wow obviously there is always some sort of 
different stories, different sort of uh, weird things that can happen when you do this and you have those unique experiences. Wow, that was really cool, Marcus. That was really cool. I really like uh, listening to you. I, I love your Buran story. I would end by asking you this one question. Would you go back and do the space shuttles again? Yeah, probably. I, w- I would. It's such an amazing place and such uh, amazing like story to have. You know, like for me, I'm always thinking about like when I'm getting my own kids or grandkids to have those history to tell them. It's just mind blowing. You know, you're going to be a, um, an excellent role model to your. <laughs> You might, you might, you might end up being the grandpa who goes exploring, (laughs) no? Yeah, probably. Yeah, (laughs) keeping with the spirit of the family. Yeah, (laughs) Marcus, thank you. Yeah, thank you for having me. Wow! So that was Marcus. The first Norwegian on Chasing Bandos podcast. Wow. Now, what do you guys say about the Marcus and his family exploring with his dad in Italy, exploring with his grandma? Wow, that's just something amazing. On top of that, the last two stories, crazy stuff, absolutely crazy stuff. The fake suicide attempt thing, (laughs) that was... (laughs) That was something else. And the guy with the crowbar, wow. When you do urbex, things happened. And certainly Marcus had few incidents along the way, wow. Really envy the Fukushima staff. I hope that one day I'll be able to do it myself and experience the frozen in time city, wow. Well, next week I'm talking to Alex, Alex McKenzie, who's a pro at flying the FPV drone. And after that, we're going to have a two week break, Easter break. Anyway, so, in terms of the housekeeping again if you would like to win the codes for the Chernobylite game kindly provided by Wojciech Pazdor from the Farm 51 they're working on the game called Chernobylite set in Chernobyl they have provided me with few steam codes if you want to win those codes you just have to share your favorite Chasing Bandos episode on your social media let me know that you've done this and I will draw two lucky winners all right So this was Chasing Bandos Podcast. I'm your host, Greg Abandoned, and I'm signing off.